All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Hello, Making the Argument audience. Very excited to join you once again. Today, we're going to be talking about something potentially slightly more depressing, but we're going to kind of unpack what's going on in East Palestine, Ohio. Um, I don't know if you guys have been watching the news about this, but there was a big train derailment and they ended up having to explode some tankers full of incredibly toxic chemicals. So we're going to break down what happened there, what's going on, maybe who's to blame, and why the media isn't covering this and talk some about our infrastructure. But I'm going to hand it to Hamilton to get us started, and then we'll get this ball rolling. As Lydia said, thank you for joining us on this episode. We want to invite you to go to the description of this podcast and join our Volley community. You can go to the link there, download the app, and join us there. We have all types of great conversations about this topic and many other things, and I have a lot of really interesting questions that I propose to our audience, uh, and they give me some very helpful information to make this podcast better. So excited for today's conversation and thank you for joining us. Yeah, so I think that first we should lay some of the groundwork of what exactly is happening in Ohio. So on February 3rd, there was a train derailment of a train of about 150 cars. And from my understanding, about 50 cars were affected, including a few that were containing very dangerous chemicals, specifically, I think it's called polyvinyl. No, it's called vinyl chloride. Okay. And this is a gas that actually interacts with the water vapor in the air and can have negative effects on human respiratory systems and obviously the natural surroundings. Um, what's happened after that? Well, what happened when that was going on was that Governor Mike DeWine issued an evacuation order for the town. The town has about 5,000 people. And from my understanding, a majority of the people evacuated. Now, the EPA is telling people that they can come back home, but people are starting to notice that their pets aren't doing well outside. There was a woman who took video of her poor little hens that had not made it through the night, which was very sad. Um, all of the fish are belly up in the river and there are just serious environmental problems that are ongoing. I was reminded when I was talking about this last night of a mining spill, a spill of 3 million gallons of wastewater in Colorado, in a Colorado river in 2015, where they went in and they released a bunch of toxic chemical waste from a mining operation. And this was under the EPA's instruction um, and when Colorado went to see if they could get some kind of compensation for the massive damage it had caused to the state of Colorado, um, the EPA said, sorry, that's never going to happen. So it seems to me, at least, that these governmental agencies are largely unaccountable when this kind of thing happens, which really raises questions in my mind about why people are so quick to trust them with keeping us safe and secure. Now, we don't have reason to believe that this particular derailment was because of someone tampering with the track. But Christian, you had been looking at some of the cases where people had been messing with the trains, I think, in Washington or over on the West Coast. Can you fill us in a little bit about that? Yeah. So rail sabotage in the United States is actually really, really rare. Um I have tried to dig through as, as many like newspaper accounts and, and um, news stories on this. And as far back as I can go to the beginning of the 20th century, there's really only three cases of rail sabotage in the U.S. that resulted in like multiple injuries and deaths. Um, and I, I oddly enough, all three of them actually remained unsolved to this day. Um, so apparently it's really, really hard to catch somebody if they commit rail sabotage. 
Um, but the last time that we actually had a case of rail sabotage in the U.S. like confirmed was in 1995, a long time ago. This was until 2020. In fact, when we started seeing an uptick in the number of rail cars in the Pacific Northwest that were starting to derail all of a sudden, um, beginning in 2020, really, um, a lot of investigators were really, really surprised because they were able to quickly piece together that it was an act of sabotage, like after the first two or three times that this had happened. Um, and to a lot of them, it was it was just really surprising because most of them who had kind of grown up in this industry or profession was like, wait, rail sabotage? This isn't, you know, a third world country. Like we haven't had a confirmed case of rail sabotage since the 90s. Um, by the way, the, uh, the 90s case was in Arizona, the Palo Verde derailment. It ended up killing one person. Um, and the reason that it happened, it was probably a copycat crime attached to a um, news reporting that had come out. Uh, reminding the public about a train derailment in 1939, um, which was the second of the um, uh, instances of rail sabotage. So probably what happened was that somebody saw that this had happened in like a news reporting in the 30s, and they decided that they wanted to go out and commit a copycat crime, and they were never caught for it. But 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 again, like until the 2020s, this was just incredibly rare in the U.S. And um, now it, it routinely happens in the Pacific Northwest and. In fact, we know who's doing it. We just don't know exact names, but we know that the people that are doing it are basically eco-terrorists. Um, many, many people actually admit as such that they are doing it. And their justification, quote unquote, is basically the typical like left-wing nonsense. Like, oh, we're derailing these cars because we're trying to protect the environment, which is really crazy if you think about it. We're going to derail a bunch of, you know, train cars that usually are carrying things like oil. Oil is... Right. very commonly transported by rail. Um, we're going to like cause intentional oil spills or chemical spills because those are the two most common things that are transported by rail in order to protect the environment. Um, the other thing too is like land rights. Like like a lot of these people obviously think that the United States is built on stolen land and that you know these, these Indian tribes should basically like take possession of like Washington state or large parts of it. And, and so they also claim to be acting in solidarity with these Indian groups, which again is very odd because oftentimes they will derail train cars and then they'll spill their, their toxic cargo on Indian land or nearby Indian land. So it's again, very ironic. Um, most of the people that are doing this are basically white progressive leftists um, that are engaging in, in almost like Ted Kaczynski style terrorist tactics and, if you know what you're doing, you can get away with it fairly easily. Um, not always. A lot of times they'll they'll be like early warning detecting um, systems that will tell train operators that hey, there's a break in the tracks or something's not right, and and the the train will will automatically engage a, a shutdown mechanism to try to break before it can crash. But um, even if you're not going to succeed in derailing it, you it's again, history has shown us that it's really easy for you to get away with an act of sabotage and not be caught. So, right. Yeah. That's a different kind of problem. And I think that really, so I just pulled up another article that was actually about, um, a power line, like a power station sabotage that also took place over in Washington. Now this one wasn't environmentally motivated. Um, this NPR article says that these guys use the outage to rob a business, which is a really interesting motivation for wanting everything to be dark and silent alarms to be turned off altogether. But if Nick's ready now, I wanted to pitch this question to him. How do you think that we can shore up our whole infrastructure and make sure that this kind of thing is harder to do going forward? Well, I mean, I, I think it's it, it's difficult, obviously, to be able to protect every single rail line sufficiently. I mean, there's there's almost no way to do that. You can attempt to do it more with greater you know, monitoring, but that, that creates other issues with respect to privacy and stuff like that. If you've just got like a ton of cameras against every line of track, um, some of it has to do with, as Christian pointed out, it's not as if random people are going out there and conducting these sorts of, you know, train derailment operations. I mean, these are, these are groups that have, have targeted trains and decided this is something they're going to go after. So you, you, you go after those groups and you dedicate more resources, but it's one of those areas where it's impossible to protect everything uh, to the degree necessary in order to to prevent it from happening. And so really what you're left with is you have to crack down on the individuals or organizations that use this as a, as a tactic. And then the punishments have to be pretty dire. 
Um, that's how you do it when it when it's actually an active eco terrorism. When it comes to like safety guidelines and things like that, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's as if we are unaware on on what constitutes safe guidelines for transporting certain materials. I think to some degree there there are going to be times when things happen because of human error. Um, and that's really what needs to happen is you need to distinguish between, okay, is this something that happened? Is this something where reasonable precautions were taken and human error at a particular point or something random caused something to happen? In which case you ask yourself, is, is there a policy issue here that we have to address? Um, or is, you know, or well, a policy issue or is there an employee issue? Um, and, and that's, and that's how you go about trying to prevent something like this from happening. The, the biggest issue that I have with what took place here is because, I don't have enough knowledge as to whether or not something broke down and caused this derailment that could have been easily prevented. What I'm more shocked about is the idea that this was going on for quite some time before the media started giving it any genuine attention. And, and to Christian's point, there's, there's derailments that take place that are, are very, you know, the, the impact is very, very local and, and not especially significant. But then you have what's going on here with with chemicals being released into the air that that does seem to have a, a much greater environmental impact that you would think the press would be all over. And, and that's the part that I find the most confusing. Yeah. So one of the things that I was reading up on, in fact, the, the reason that this was on my radar in the first place was because the media wasn't covering it. What they were covering was the arrest of a journalist who was trying to cover a press conference with Governor DeWine. And I guess he was in there and he was talking during the presser and the cops threatened to throw him out. And he said, okay, I need to finish watching this press conference because that's my job. And they said, no, you have to leave right now and threw him out. Governor DeWine did not like that. He said later that he hadn't been aware that they were throwing him out and he was 100% against it. But that was the thing that the media was covering because that's kind of the bipartisan stance that the media tends to take if ever they're if ever they think that there's a threat to their right to report on something, which frankly I'm glad for in this instance because honestly it might have been something that we never heard anything more about. I had only seen a few images on Twitter from East Palestine and had no idea of how huge it was. So I don't like that this journalist got arrested, but I do like that the media had the response of saying, oh my gosh, this is happening in Ohio. But the problem is that the media didn't even cover it in such a way that I was able to put two and two together. And I'm a person who's looking at the news pretty much 24-7. I know for a fact that the ordinary person who's running around chasing kids and pets and working a job and trying to feed their family is probably not going to put together that the journalist got kicked out of a press conference about this oil spill, about this crazy chemical leak. It's not technically an oil spill, pardon me. And that really alarmed me. So what do you guys think this says? And I'll open this up to all of you guys. What do you guys think this says about the mainstream media in the U.S.? And should this be a red pill for people? Well, I'll say real quick, the thing that does make me a little bit you know, upset here is that theoretically, if, if this is a Department of Transportation issue, then this looks bad on Buttigieg, it looks bad on the administration. I apologize for the background noise, by the way. Um, and, and that didn't seem to be enough reason to actually talk about this. But the moment it's a Republican governor kicking out a journalist, then all of a sudden it's newsworthy. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's, that's my conspiratorial side of this. Yeah, that's certainly a point. And I, I, I pitched this idea before we started, and I know everybody, Vice wrote an article about how everyone's getting all conspiratorial about this, how people think this might be something that they're distracting us from. Um, but my conspiracy was that the media hasn't been covering this because they do think that it might have been Pete Buttigieg's fault, which... I'm not convinced it was. I do know that the rail workers were bargaining with Biden to try to get, you know, increased paid leave and better benefits and stuff like that. And they'd reached some kind of agreement because, and Christian, you may be able to speak to this. I don't think many people realize this, but we see a lot of trucks on the road. But what we don't see is all of the trains that are also constantly running that really keep our country going. Um, and we don't consider much of the time how much stuff is transported via train. Um, so Christian, what what role do trains play in our everyday lives that we are often overlooking, do you think? Um, to give you an idea, trains are so important to the economy that every five-year-old 
boy in this country probably <laughs> goes through a phase in their life where they're where they're super interested into trains. I know that I was. Um, now, like like rail transportation in general. Actually, here's a better way to look at it. Rail transportation is so important um, and so fundamental to the economy, and and upholds so many other key industries simply through the act of it, it serving as a, a, a means of transportation from point A to point B, that Warren Buffett went out and bought an entire railroad over a oh. decade ago, which we did a Y minute on. Yep. Um, and Buffett is not in the business of losing money. Um, so he obviously made the calculated, he went out there and he bought in cash uh, the BNSF railway, which is one of only a handful of major railroads in the country. It's the chief competitor of Union Pacific, which is probably the more famous in terms of its name because it's so old. Um, but it it is rail transportation has has been with us for, you know, easily over a century, almost two centuries. And it's probably going to be with us for quite a long time because it's so fuel efficient. Um, yes, it is very capital intensive. Uh, unfortunately, it's heavily unionized. Um, there's there's tons of expenses that have to go into maintaining a railroad. You have to replace the rolling stock. You need to replace the rail lines themselves. You have to maintain them all. Um, railroad companies have, you know, tens of thousands of employees. So it's, it's heavily cap. It's heavily regulated by the federal government. There's, you have to fork over a ton of money in order to run a railroad, but um, as the game of Monopoly will tell you, um, if you own a railroad, it's, it's a great investment. Um, it, it, and, the reason why is because it is so fundamental to the way that the American economy operates. And that's kind of why this is a big deal. Because when a rail car derails, especially one as large as this, you're talking over 100, what was it, like over 140 rail cars were part of this train. When a rail car derails, that's a bigger deal than when an individual truck crashes. Right. Like the, this East Palestine derailment, this is the equivalent of multiple semi trucks crashing. You know, it's almost like a pile up of them because each right. individual rail car has the ability to carry as, as much cargo as an individual semi truck. So when you have a train and I'm not saying all 140 of these rail cars derailed. Right. But when you have have dozens of them derailing, that's the equivalent of multiple semi trucks all crashing at the same time. There's just the ability for more damage to take place in a, in a confined area. I think it would be reasonable. That's a good point. I think it's reasonable to think that a lot of Americans could see the situation and say, well, we need more regulation and the Department of Transportation needs to do something about this. What would your response to to that, Christian? I mean, those are the same people that are upset about the monopolization of railroads over time. And that's <laughs> also because of regulations. It, it, put it like this. When Warren Buffett went out there in 2009 and he was like, hmm, I've got $40 billion in the bank and I think I want to go buy a railroad. Why did he go buy a railroad? Well, you have to look at the investment thesis that Buffett uses. Again, we've talked about this in the Y minute, yep. so I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna to rehash that in a, in a brief format. Buffett is in the business to make money and his thesis for making money is he wants to put his investments in what he calls hot um, industries that have a large moat, businesses that have an extremely wide moat and preferably one that gets wider every single year. What is a moat? A moat is a barrier to entry in the marketplace. It's not always by driven by government. Sometimes it's driven by proprietary information or a patent or something like that. So for example, Apple has a tremendous moat with its entire integrated network of like computers and iPhones and stuff like that. It'd be very hard. People have tried. Microsoft has tried to compete with with Apple um, on on the the whole smartphone industry, and it, 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 it they've just never been able to break through. Well, Buffett looked at railroads and saw that there's only a handful of railroads in operation in this country. You have Kansas City Southern, which is the smallest. You have the two Canadian ones, Canadian Pacific and Canadian National, which are also in the U.S. And then on the East Coast, you have CSX and Norfolk Southern, and on the West Coast, you have BNSF and you have Union Pacific, and that's it. There are no other railroads, class one railroads in the United States. That's the entire number. And so he looks at the fact that in each region of the country or North America in general, if you want to include Canada, there's a duopoly. There's only two companies, right? On the East Coast, we only have two railroads that operate on the entire East Coast. Again, CSS, um, CSX and Norfolk Southern. Norfolk Southern was the one that had the derailment in East Palestine that we were talking about. So Buffett looked at this and thought, well, gosh, what better mode is there than the fact that if I'm buying BNSF, I literally only have one competitor. There's only one 
business that can compete with me. And he also thought if I started with a larger pool of cash, say $100 billion instead of $40 billion, could I go out there and build my own railroad to compete with either any of these six railroads? And he ultimately concluded, no, he couldn't. He could not start his own railroad from scratch and actually compete with any of them. And that is a clear sign that there's a giant moat there. If you can't even start with a larger amount of money than what you're going to be buying the business for, in this case, he bought BNSF for $40 billion, and he concluded if he started with $100 billion, he couldn't outcompete them. So why start something from scratch when you could just buy them? And the reason but, but, why... But the, go ahead, Nick. No, no, go, go ahead and finish your thought. Okay, I'll, I'll end with this. The reason why I'm bringing all this up is because we're talking about a century's worth of government regulation and interference within the railroad industry. Many of these these, these railroads, in, in some ways being subsidized directly and, and impartially built by the state itself, the extreme level of government regulation and interference within the railroad industry is a huge reason why you have seen this rapid consolidation in the number of companies um, over time, like a century ago, there were over a hundred independent railroad corporations. And now there's only six class one railroads in the U S wow. and again, the reason why is because it's so heavily regulated and controlled by the government. Nobody, not even Warren Buffett himself could break into the market with a hundred billion dollars to start with to create his own new railroad company to compete with the six existing ones. He thought it was cheaper to just go and buy one of the existing ones because nobody's starting a new railroad from scratch in this country. It's just impossible to do. Go ahead, Nick. Well, I, I would also say when you talk about government involvement in railroads, too, I think it's important to look at kind of like the, the early history of this. Go, go look at the history of the Union Pacific and the Pacific Union, and then go look at the history of the Great Northern Railroad. Because um, the Great Northern was the only one that didn't get massive government assistance, massive government land grants, you know, assistance from the army to clear out tribes ahead of you know, railroad construction. Um, and they were one of the, the most profitable, efficient, effective railroads in the country until other railroads that did have you know, better lobbyists, essentially, uh, created an environment where it made it almost impossible for the Great Northern to be able to compete with them. And so the thing I would say is now, again, there's a difference between regulation within competition and regulation within things like safety standards. But keep in mind, a lot of the times that the government is pushing a, quote, safety standard, it's usually been written by the very industry that is oftentimes trying to keep out competition. And, and a lot of times that they, they write various safety standards, they do so in a way based off of existing technology rather than new developing or emerging technology. And so for for anyone that wants to immediately come to the conclusion that what's needed here is more government. I think it, I would caution everybody. Like, let's like, let's completely find out what's going on. And then let, let's also point out that the, the big issue that we're experiencing right now is not exclusively because there was a train derailment. It's the nature of what it was carrying. The fact that it caught fire, the fact that when you look at uh, vinyl chloride and, and what happens when it burns and how it attaches to you know water molecules and everything else, that's that's the larger issue that we need to take a look at here, um, and, and that's the why this this has become such a major issue is because we have organizations you know within the federal government within the EPA saying, hey, not a big deal, and I and I think most people just look into the pictures of this going, wait a second, this this looks kind of like a big deal. Like if you're going to tell me it's not. You're going to have to explain why you don't get just to, you don't get to just say, trust the experts, right? That ship has sailed, Hoss, right? You want to tell me it's not a big deal. You best explain why it's not a big deal. And I'd like to see details. Yes, certainly. And I really think this highlights the way the media kind of gaslights us a little bit. I did want to say there is someone who has been working on trying to figure out what was going on here. And that is the senator from Ohio, J.D. Vance. So he issued a statement on Monday vowing to get to the bottom of the train derailment and the chemical burn that's taking place in East Palestine, Ohio. Um, I guess, you know, they summarize it for us. Authorities released toxic chemicals from the derailed train cars to reduce the threat of explosion. Residents were told to evacuate, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Um, and basically what J.D. Vance is trying to do is kind of establish that he has an eye open for... Um, Ohioans, which I completely understand. This is absolutely what he should be doing. Um, he's encouraging people with credible, cre credible reports of environmental harm to contact his office. 
Um, he says he's just going to be continuing to engage with the relevant agencies and monitor the situation in the region. Nick, do you think it would be useful for J.D. Vance to establish something or figure out some way to hold these organizations accountable for what's happened in East Palestine specifically? Well, Theoretically, there there already are. I mean, there's, it's it's very difficult to find situations for which something like this happens and just up oh, nobody's responsible. There's no way to hold them responsible. I mean, that's why we have court system. That's why there's actually laws on the books. There's why there's like various safety standards and inspection standards that people are supposed to follow. The biggest issue that we have right now, again, one one of the biggest issues for me right now is we don't know what we don't know. And, and so obviously there has to be an investigation. The problem is, and the reason why I think what JD Vance is doing is important is because he, he's not flying off the handle and starting to blame everyone. He's, he's not saying that anybody that calls his office and say, you know, grandma died because of the black cloud in the sky, right? He, he's not saying, okay, that, that settles it. We're done. But what he is doing is he's saying, okay, we're getting one narrative from the administration. We're getting one narrative from these executive branch agencies. We're getting, one narrative from the, the train company. He goes, and then we're getting a different narrative from, from people that are, are, are living there and are experiencing various things with, with pets, with livestock. Um, and, and, there's, and, and again, this isn't something where they're just throwing out random claims. Um, but we, we have to look at a couple of things. One, when a disaster happens, do some people look at it as a potential opportunity to cash in? Yes. All right. Does the, the railway have a natural incentive to try to you know, minimize not just the actual damage, but also the, the, you know, the publicity and everything? Yes. Does the, the government have a vested interest in finding out what's wrong, but do they also have a vested interest if they think they could be to blame to also try to you know, maybe minimize um, um, their involvement? Yes. So what J.D. Vance is doing right now that I think makes a lot of sense is he's saying like, okay, look, if you're noticing things, or if these things are happening, please contact my office because what he's trying to do is compile a preponderance of evidence, right? He, he, this, is, this is a very simple inductive argument. If I've got, you know, two people in that area saying my dog died under, you know, suspicious circumstances, okay, that's probably not something to launch in a, a, a wholly new investigation over. If he has 240 people call and say that, well, then now something is not, something's not jiving with the official narrative. But the only way you can know that is that if you, if you actually have a centralized place where people can actually send in what they're seeing or what they're experiencing, and then you also uh, have reasonable people going through that data, following up, doing analysis in order to kind of separate the wheat from the chaff on things that sound like you know, claims that can be verified versus ones that just simply can't. Christian, help me understand yeah. something. Cl clear this up for me. Train derailments are frequent or are infrequent? They're... I'm going to say they're frequent, but, but that might lead our audience to like have this picture that like trains aren't safe. Trains are actually one of the safest ways to transport things. Um, way, way safer than, than by truck or car. I, I, like the number of car accidents and, and truck crashes in this, in this country is, is massively <laughs> outpaces the number of train derailments, especially injuries um, for, for trains. So, so don't, don't walk away from this episode thinking that railroads are inherently unsafe or bad. Um, in fact, we should be transporting more things by rail, not, not well, less. What would the benefit of more railway transportation be? Oh, they're, they're, they're extremely fuel efficient and, and they take trucks off the road, which lead to congestion, especially on highways around major cities. Um, it, the problem is, is that it's it's incredibly, like I said earlier, it's incredibly capital intensive to build new rail lines. And a lot of railroad companies, they have no incentive to do so. There's very, very, very few new rail lines that are being constructed in this country, because if you're if you're Canadian Pacific, you only have one competitor and it's Canadian National. And if you're CSX, you only have one competitor, Snowflake Southern. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, like, there's just not the motivation that existed a hundred years ago to build new rail lines, because there's no need from the perspective of the individual companies, because they only have one competitor in each region. So we're not building new rail lines, unfortunately. Um, and so it's harder to really pull more trucks and cars off the road because what we have is what we have. But no, like, like if, if you're going to walk away from this episode with anything, don't let it be that we need less, you know, role for, for, for railroads to play in the American economy, because 
it's a critical role and, and it should honestly in many ways be a larger role. Um, it just should be a, a, a role that allows for more competition to exist. And unfortunately, we're moving in the wrong direction in large part because of government's uh, in intervention within the railroad industry for the past century. And we're not going to really fix that overnight. Um, it took us a century to get to this point. It's it's not going to take us two or three weeks to get back to some sort of like free market where you have, you know, new people coming up with new ideas and new companies. But um, yeah, derailments happen quite often. Not, not again, when I, I don't mean like every day yeah. or every other day, but, you know, you could have in this country, you know, several, several dozen instances per year easily. Okay outside of like the the weird thing that's going on in the Pacific Northwest with you know sabotage and stuff like that sure. just, just just natural accidents they happen um but do they result in all sorts of injuries and deaths all the time not even close to the number of injuries and deaths that you have with cars and trucks not even close okay so Christian you were talking about how trains are better than cars and trucks for moving some of this cargo which is Awesome. Not something that I realized ahead of time. Um, but now that you think, uh, now that I think about it, that makes perfect sense. It gets, you know, cars off the road, which makes travel safer for everyone. Um, but one of the things I was thinking about that I think people might raise as a point is the question of Amtrak, because Amtrak, from my understanding, has been a money sink and the government refuses to let it die. So what's your take on Amtrak and how is the regular actual rail system so much better, so much different? Amtrak is in many ways terrible. I've ridden on Amtrak before. There's actually an Amtrak station that that or, or um there's an Amtrak train that stops by here in Culpeper where Hamilton and I and Nick live um and I once took an Amtrak train all the way down to West Palm Beach Florida and it was miserable all these people uh, uh, there's so many people that are like the U.S. needs to be like Europe and just build high-speed rail everywhere California's trying to do the same thing and they've blown billions of dollars trying to do it and they never even got it finished right. in large part because they threw all the money at unions and I, it, it's costing them an astronomical amount of money to build even one mile of track. And they're still not done with the project. Um, it's Amtrak is, is it's it's nice and pretty and that like the cars look nice and, and, you know, they're not busy because nobody ever rides them because it's it's just not really cost efficient for people to ride a train. It's way cheaper to just jump on a bus um, or just drive themselves if they have a car. Um, in some cases, it could just be worth jumping on a plane, um, especially after COVID when we saw that, that airfares dropped like a rock because airlines were bleeding money and they just needed to get people on the planes. Um, so, no, like Amtrak, as it currently stands, I am not surprised that it's losing money at all. Um, I've ridden Amtrak to New York City and I've ridden Amtrak all the way to West Palm Beach. Very long trips, too. Um, the one to West Palm Beach was over 24 hours. I think it was like 28 hours in total um, from here. And it was in many ways a miserable trip. Um, it's why I would, believe it or not, I would actually willingly drive to South Florida than jump on a train now, which is kind of goes to show a little bit to, to the issue with it. I think that part of the problem with Amtrak even outside of the fact that it's run by the government, which is inherently one of the biggest problems that it has. But part of the problem is, is that we're in a country that is the size of a continent, right? So like European countries are much denser, much denser. The population density of the Rhineland and Germany is, I mean, just dwarfs the population density of most U.S. states, even the densest of U.S. states. You, you look at, at this belt of, of cities that exist that stretch through Belgium and the Netherlands and France and Germany down to Switzerland and Italy and Milan. This, this stretch of land that used to form like the western border of like the Roman Empire several thousand years ago is heavily densely populated. And there's tons of rail lines that exist within there. And so you have all these Europeans usually that live in this, this banana-shaped crescent in Western Europe that are like, I don't understand why Americans just don't build more railroads for passenger cars. It's because we're dealing with a continent. Each individual state is the size of a European country. In terms of landmass, but the European countries have population densities that are massive compared to U.S. states. Germany is the size of an individual U.S. state, and yet it has a population of over 80 million people, wow. which is like 
incredible when you consider the population. The population of Virginia is one tenth the population of Germany. Right. And and yet again, Germany yeah, is the size is- of an individual U.S. state, and so it's it's more economically viable to build railroads in places like Germany because you're transporting a larger number of people over a shorter distance than in the United States. Am I saying that it's, oh, well, that means it's impossible. We're never going to be able to have, you know, railroads be economically viable in the U.S. Well, at one point in time, they were. At one point in time, railroads in the golden days of railroads, they, they were viable for transporting people. But what happened was is that the emergence of the highway system in airlines really in the 40s and 50s and 60s. The 50s was the, the critical era where this transition happened. The combination of highways and airlines basically doomed railroads when it came to passenger tra- um, uh, transportation. And so because they operated in a relative free market, again, we've already talked about this earlier about how it's not a completely free market, not at all. But the solution that a lot of these railroad companies had to, to save themselves from going under was to pivot away from transporting people to transporting goods, right? And so that's why today, when we talk about these these um, railroads that exist and like derailments and, and you know, what happened in East Palestine here, um, you know, th- these railroads aren't carrying passengers. They're carrying, in many cases, like chemicals and, and manufactured goods and stuff like that. And the reason why is because they used to carry people and it just didn't, it got to a point where it was not profitable for them to do so anymore. And there's a lot of reasons why it's not profitable. And it's not just because, oh, well, the free market is failing here and, you know, you need the government to step in and and do something that the market won't. The market did it for a century efficiently. And then the market evolved and came up with new technologies that then put railroads at a disadvantage to do this. Go ahead, Lydia. Yeah, I would say that it's not the free market to blame here at all. And I have to say your point about Europe is super interesting. And it's something that we could, you know, make an entire other episode on or maybe even a why minute for you guys, because the differences between Europe and the U.S. are so vast. It's incredible. And when I, I was over there for a short time and the amount of complaining about the U.S. was just astronomical, but I was like, we are the people behind the medical advancements that give you the opportunity to keep your drug prices low. We protect you militarily. Yes, we're different from you, but we also make your wonderful Western lives possible. So I feel like we deserve a little credit. But before we get further derailed, no pun intended, <laughs> um, I wanted to kind of <laughs> terrible, terrible pun. Sorry about that. Um, I wanted to kind of spitball what you guys think would happen if something terrible like this were to happen in Virginia, somewhere that Nick would have some kind of say in what happened, because I like what J.D. Vance is doing now, but the fact that he came out with this 11 days after this happened kind of makes me scratch my head, because I know he's a busy guy or whatever, but this is a huge issue that affects his own constituents. So I really think there's a lesson in here about both how politicians can better directly address some of these issues and about how the media covers it so that people even know about it in the first place. So and I don't believe it. Lydia in 2005, I was um, with my father in Aiken, South Carolina, which is um, just across the Savannah river from Augusta, Georgia, um, where, where they play the masters in, in golf every year. And um, there was a massive, um, train derailment at a town called Graniteville, which is very close. I think it's like five miles or something right. like that away from Aiken. It's a very, very close town. And it was a big train derailment and it was carrying a ton of chloride. Um, uh, um, it's, sorry. No, it was carrying chlorine. Um, chlorine. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Not chloride. It was carrying chlorine. And um, the Graniteville accident, I remember because I, I was relatively young at the time. I was only 11 but I remember it being on the news, certainly the local news where we were, because like they were telling you stay indoors, don't go outside. Chlorine is very, very toxic. The Germans used it in World War One. Um, it's not something you really want to, uh, you know, play around with, <laughs> um, especially the, the kind that's being transported by rail cars. And um, it took quite a while to to like decontaminate the site. Um, unfortunately it killed, I think over 20 people, that accident and injured another 20 something people. And it took several weeks for, for, 
you know, the entire area to be cleaned up, basically. And the entire town of Graniteville had to be evacuated. There were all sorts of people from Graniteville that moved in with relatives in Aiken, or they stayed at, like, hotels in Aiken. Um, it was a big mess. It was somewhat similar to what's happening in East Palestine, although it looks like what's happening in East Palestine is actually worse than the Graniteville accident from 2005. But I can say from my personal experience being there at the time when it happened, even though I was a kid, and so, you know, I was kind of operating with this child's mindset, um, you know, I, I wasn't an adult taking in all the information, but I could say that if something like that happened here, for example, the rail line that Amtrak uses through um, Culpeper is actually owned by Norfolk Southern. Um, Norfolk Southern trains pass by here in Culpeper all the time. You can actually hear them if you step outside of this studio at the right time, right? Um, so we're not that far away from from the rail lines that cut through Culpeper here. And if something like that happened around here, maybe not in Culpeper, but, you know, let's say in Falkir or something like that, if there was a train derailment here, I have no doubt that it would be a big issue, um, at least until we could actually clean up the mess, whatever the mess is, um, and, and get people, you know, relocated where they need to be until we can actually, you know, contain the, contain the accident. I have no doubt that somebody like Nick would be issuing public statements, the legislature might depending on what happened, depending on the circumstances, depending on on what caused the accident, the legislature might be called back into session to investigate it. You know, Nick might need to go back to Richmond for it. And again, I'm just, you know, pure conjecture here trying to piece together what I think can, could happen. Yeah, can I, can, I say, can I say something on that? Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, I, I'm, I'm going to be. Well, let, let me let me put it this way. Um, I always find it a little bit. Personally, I always find it a little bit irritating when politicians immediately rush out when something like this happens, as if they have some sort of special knowledge or insight into what took place, what caused it, and what the solution is. Like almost, you see this all the time when when something happens and it gets a lot of press. It's always immediately, you've got to rush out there as quick as you can to either condemn something or promise that you're going to fix it through a piece of legislation. I hate that because in most cases, it's a lie. It's a publicity stunt. They're, they're, not, they're not legislating. They're not talking about policy. They're campaigning. And, and there's, there's certainly something to be said for people knowing that their elected representatives are aware of what's going on and are concerned about it and are giving it the proper attention and are there for their constituents. And I think that's fine. I, I think whenever you have something like this happen, coming out immediately, letting constituents know, you know, please feel free to reach out to our office if there's anything that we can help you with as far as constituent services, et cetera. Um, but, but to immediately come out and, and declare something when you might not even know exactly what happened is a part of the problem. And so I, I think it's really important for elected officials, even though we, even though we know you're, you're going to get slammed if you don't immediately take a side on a particular issue on something like this, my response would be, you know, th this is obviously tragic. There's obviously a lot of concerns with respect to some of the chemicals that are going out. We would we would ask people to, you know, not only listen to your your you know local authorities and whatnot with respect to the guidance that they're giving you, but also, you know, take the necessary precautions that you feel are appropriate for your family as we find out more about what's going on and what the nature of it is. You know, I, I can assure you that if there's, you know, we we will be. You know, you know, getting to the bottom of this. Also, please contact our office. Here's the various ways that you can do that. We will try to give regular updates as well as we learn more about what's going on. People don't want to be kept in the dark. Uh, they certainly want to know if there's something that's potentially dangerous. Uh, by the same token, you run into this issue where, okay, I, I don't want to, I don't want to cause panic for something that you know it might not be required for everyone to leave their house. So this is the, this is the part where there's this fine line, and then we can always look back, you know, in hindsight. And but I mean, look at look at how we responded to COVID. It was like, no, no, no. The, the only thing that we can possibly yes. do is we have to shut down the economy and we have to do all this other stuff. And we, we have to react because we got to do something and doing something is better than doing nothing. That's until such a great comparison. Is worse yeah. until the something that you do is actually worse. So the thing I the thing I would from my perspective. It, it's the, the reason why I would advise people, you know, make sure that you're you're tuning in and you're listening to what's going on and taking guidance. But I wouldn't tell someone, do whatever your local authorities tell you to do as far as your, your own safety and precautions. I, I would say we will be putting on information about what we know is, is going on, the information that we have as accurate as we, as we can, as we can you know, uh, find it. 
And then you have to make some of your own decisions with respect to what do you think is best for you and your family. Nobody can do that for you. Um, and, and I do think it's important for people to, to generally, to really embrace this notion that yes, your elected representatives, the local authorities, all the people you pay taxes for, they, they owe you answers. And, and to the extent that it's within the realm of their authority um, or capabilities, they, they owe you results. But I, I think we've almost created a society where people are like, I'm just going to wait to be told what to do. And that's not healthy either. That's also not a good idea. If, if you see a big, you know, black, you know, billowing cloud in the sky and all of a sudden your animals start dying, you don't need someone to tell you that it's, it, you should leave or you shouldn't leave. You should make your own assessment at that point and say, you know what? I don't think this is safe. Right. Can That's I? That's a great analysis, Nick. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, can Can I just point out, like, that is an incredibly humble take on this that you well, don't, don't see don't, from I a lot of politicians? Either. Because you know what? 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 Some of your colleagues in the General Assembly would say they'd be like, "I've been an expert on trains since I watched Thomas the Tank Engine as a young kid, and and I'm a yeah. I'm a genius at railroad tycoon. I obviously know what I'm talking about because I'm a politician. I'm an expert on all things. And then they're going to convene their committees back, and then they're gonna they're gonna bring all the experts out. But, but but of course they know more than the experts because they're the elected officials, right? You know they've been endowed with with you know an infinite amount of knowledge and then they're going to say you see the problem is is that you just haven't given me more power and more control and this is what we need to do and we're going to pass a bunch of laws and everything um like like that is absolutely how politicians address any problem right it's, it, you use the the example of covid how many politicians immediately pretended that they were experts when it came to viral diseases starting in 2020 who knew who knew that the world's greatest collection of scientific minds when it came to viruses was actually in the United States Congress. Yeah. Um, it, it like it, it's this idea. It's almost like, like the whole never let a crisis go to waste type of thing. And it's also never let a crisis, um, not be used as an example for you to show your constituents in the general public, how much of a genius you are on any particular issue. Um, even if you have or, actually no knowledge on that topic, well, no, or or that it's or that it's this idea that like if you're not getting out there and giving specific instructions or blaming someone, then you don't care. And 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 that's that's another big component of this. I mean, I understand that the, the media and everyone has a natural incentive to. <laughs> the, the media doesn't gain as much from tamping down and creating calm as they do from creating panic. And, and that's not to say that there aren't times, well, panic's never necessary, but there aren't times where there are serious concerns and the media should do its job to make sure that those concerns are, are, are available, especially when they feel like, you know, the, the proper authorities are not doing a good job of actually talking about it. But th there's, a, there's a certain degree, there's a certain degree of, there's a certain degree of personal responsibility in every single issue. And that's, that's the thing that I want people to understand is that, it, it's not that you shouldn't be upset or frustrated when this happens based off of, you know, who might genuinely be to blame. It might be, you know, it, it could be that one person within the railroad did something stupid that they shouldn't have done. And that doesn't mean the whole railroad is crap. It means that that person did something stupid. Now, you might find out later that actually it was a whole series of events or actually it was bad policy or actually it was. But we don't know that right now. Here's what we know right now. What we know right now is dangerous chemicals right, have, have caught fire. And maybe that would have been better than if there was an explosion, right? Maybe this was, maybe this was the, the lesser of two evils with respect to what the response had to look like. And, and everybody that's going to be you know, personally affected by this has every right to be frustrated, to be upset, to want answers, to want answers immediately with respect to, okay, what is the best advice for what I should do? And, and they should certainly use the answers that they're going to be given, but they also shouldn't completely rely on them. And, and politicians need to be careful in the sort of responses that they give so as to not either cause panic or create a false sense of security. And some of that actually comes down with actually coming out and saying, like, we don't know right now. We just we don't know right now. We are this is these are the steps that we are taking in order to make sure that we do have the appropriate knowledge so that we can give you better advice. In the meantime, here's what we do know, and you're going to have to make decisions on what works best for you and what to do next. I think that's a great summary. And it sounds like what JD Vance is doing is 
pretty much exactly the right thing because he gave it some time. He let them make their own environmental judgments. And then he said, okay, so what we're going to continue to do is just keep monitoring it and try to keep people safe, uh, which I really have to say I respect because he is working at the national level. Now, I don't know about the local politicians, but good on him for letting the people of Ohio know. So today's episode has been really fun. We're going to try to wrap it up here. I've really enjoyed learning about some of the infrastructure in our country. A lot of this overlooked stuff that none of us ever really think about, but that we would be really in deep trouble without. So I think that we can end it here and feel like we've really given people kind of a grasp on what's going on over there. Uh, something that the media is really not apparently interested in giving everyone for whatever reason. Um, and just tell them to stay up on the news and try to keep in touch with uh, maybe their local politicians and try to stay involved that way. Um, we can't really prevent this kind of thing individually, but we can be responsible and taking our own best positive actions to keep our own family safe. And I think that's probably the most positive takeaway we can get here. Hopefully the, um, the issue in East Palestine will re be resolved shortly. I would not take anything the EPA says with anything less than a grain of salt just because of what happened in Colorado. I have that personal connection because I'm from Colorado. Um, but I really think that this will hopefully open people's eyes. And I wanted to say as we're wrapping here, a lot of conservative commentators have kind of been like, are we under attack? Because we had a bunch of foreign objects flying in the skies recently, and we've had a couple train derailments over the last couple days. And I just wanted to say that I don't think that we are. Um, this is actually something that I noticed back in 2021. A bunch of food processing plants were exploding, which was very interesting to me as well. But I started to notice, I looked at some of the previous patterns, and this is apparently a thing that happens, there was just a spate of them in quick succession. And really what's being highlighted with like the explosion of food processing plants and issues with trains is that we need to decentralize more. And the problem with railroad tracks, obviously, is that it's very difficult. This is why Warren Buffett invested in it. Very difficult to decentralize that. Um, but the free market will continue to make greater improvements if we can scale back some of that regulation. So I really just think this is a big red pill as far as the fact that trains exist and we really need them. And we should be grateful for the infrastructure that we do have. And hopefully going forward, we won't have any more issues like this, um, especially since we know that it's difficult to track people who sabotage train tracks and whatnot. But thank you guys all very much for joining us. Make sure to check, check out our volley chat. That's a lot of fun. It's an interesting little app. The link is in the description on the podcast and will be on the YouTube video as well. We look forward to meeting you there. You can tell us your ideas and we can all have that fun dialogue that we appreciate having with you guys. Thank you all so much for joining us and we will see you Thursday. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.